Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own world's views. Today, I would like to introduce you to Kandria. She is here to just talk about her life, the different things that have led her to where she is today between entertainment, creativity, technology, lots of different directions we can go in. So I'm excited to hear from her today. So Kandria, why don't you go ahead, tell us a little bit about yourself and say hello. Hey, thanks so much for having me today, Sarah. I really appreciate your time and for uh, inviting me here. My name is Kandria Wade, and I'm currently a PhD student in the Information Science Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, There, I'm a member of the Identity Lab, led by Dr. Jed Brubaker, and the Internet Rules Lab, led by Dr. Casey Fiesler. Um, My my department in information science is centered around human-computer interaction, and my research specifically focuses on algorithmic identity and the digital surveillance of marginalized groups. So, In the last year, I've been researching diversity, race, and gender in AI, and um, along with my research, I also seek to discover and assist in creating proper ethical regulations and education around these topics. So um, backing up from there a little bit, I have a background in over 15 years of entertainment and media, as you were mentioning, and my interests have really evolved from demographic programming for entertainment and media to corporate user ethics and legal protections for the digital citizen. Um, Currently, I'm researching how we can harness entertainment and marketing in media uh, and fine arts as educational tools for translating like really complex messages to vulnerable and marginalized communities. Um, Yeah, I think that's about it. And I have a bachelor's in technical theater from the University of Texas at Arlington, and I have a master's in media culture and communications from New York University. Cool. It sounds like you've done a little bit of everything and I can kind of see where your like bit of a change in career path might have landed. So what were you doing in the entertainment industry? Oh, that's a great question. So um, in that 15 years of experience, I started working at uh, Six Flags over Texas. I was working at a theme park as a technician. I was a lighting technician and did a bunch of other things. Um, but, uh, I, I did theater, uh, which I like, like I said, is my bachelor's is in, I was a lighting designer at a concert venue. Um, but I've done all sorts of things in fine arts, events, television, film. I have worked for, uh, Viacom CBS, Bravo World of Wonder, uh, South by Southwest, ACL, like Austin city limits, ABC Disney. I was a technical director for the big D NYE Dallas new year celebration and a lot of stuff like that. And this is in addition to also holding full-time positions as like a technical director. I was teaching at a college, a uh, production coordinator for major venues and city-funded cultural art centers. And that was across Texas and in New York. So that's that's what I was doing in entertainment. And it's been a little bit of everything from like being up in, in lifts and catwalks, wearing harnesses and hanging lights, or, you know, having a bunch of students in a scene shop and making sure no one hurts themselves. <laughs> So what made you decide, oh, I want to go and get a PhD? Yeah. um, So I went to NYU. I think, I think what happened was I was, I was working in events. I was firsthand. I was on the ground. I love that. I love being in the middle of the action, 
but I wanted to start working on maybe the corporate side of entertainment. And I, when I was looking for a way to do this, I started thinking about demographic programming. So I'm thinking about programming, you know, specifically for areas, for populations, for certain um, groups of people in media and entertainment. And so I decided to go to NYU to get my master's in media culture and communications. And there I learned about, in one of the very first classes I had to take, about user data and algorithmic identity and became super fascinated with the concept of, you know, algorithmic identity and the implications and ethics around user data. You know, who's seeing it, who's buying it, who's selling it, what's being done with it. So I started taking all of my electives in the applied statistics department and kind of merged and made my own master's in a way um, between media culture and communications with what I was interested in surrounding data and information science and ethics. And so once I finished that program, I was really leaning toward the, um, the ethics side of it and algorithmic identity. And I never thought I would do a PhD. I really didn't. Um, but I ended up graduating from NYU a semester earlier than I thought I would. So I was like, well, while I have the gusto, while I have this energy to keep going academically, let me put in some applications and see what happens. And um, I'm, I'm really happy that I decided to do this. And I've, I've learned so much and been able to really like stretch myself as a person in this new academic realm. And so what are you learning in the realm of diversity, race, gender, that sort of research that you were talking about within the AI tech industry? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm learning a lot about, I mean, I think a lot of us know, or we're starting to learn about the the bias and discrimination that happens within AI and within these technical systems that a lot of companies um, and even ourselves are relying on these days. And so I think that a lot of people are starting to learn themselves or by what you're seeing in the media, that the same type of bias and you know discrimination that we have in the real world is starting to be reflected within these systems. And what I'm learning about is you know why this is happening and what do we do about it? Do we do anything about it? How do we prevent it? Do we retool and rebuild the systems that already exist or do we you know scrap them and start all over again and build a better future from there? And so I'm looking at mainly right now that I've kind of done all of this like preliminary work on understanding what's happening. How do we then educate the populations that are most at risk of the implications of being sorted within systems? How do we actually reach them where they're at, speak their language and inform them and educate them about things that they typically would never hear about, which is why they often end up being uh, most affected by the, by the things that are happening within these systems. So that's why I'm looking at things like fine arts and media and entertainment and um, these informal learning techniques to be able to educate people on these very complicated topics. And is there a like good solution, you know, answering the question of do we retool everything? Do we try to change it? Do we try to make it relearn? Is, is there an answer? At the moment, I mean, a lot of people have different opinions. I have to say, I don't think there is one solution. I think that a lot of it has to do with educating the user. And so I think it's a, it's a top-down and bottom-up issue. I think the bottom-up is educating the user so they can be smarter about the decisions that they're making, about their digital footprint, where they're seen, and how they're representing themselves within systems. Um, but I think that there just needs to be also regulation coming down from the top on what is able to be done with data, what is, you know, how capable are these systems of making real decisions that affect people's lives. And so 
there's the two bigger aspects there. But when it comes to what do we do about, you know, what's happening within systems now, one of the the biggest things that I usually talk about is like, do we really need AI to solve all of our problems? Do we really need um, computers to do things that humans, sometimes we're great at doing, sometimes we're terrible at doing, or do we just need to train those humans better? Um, so I think the question that I'm exploring right now is we, I think we need to take a better look at AI being, is it really necessary in solving all of the world's problems or is it just like the hottest, newest, most convenient thing? Cause it, the, the computing and processing power is really what the benefit is, you know, large amounts of data very quickly, the predictive analysis that it does. But, um, you know, when you have bias that's built into a system that is human bias and now it's running at a bigger, faster speed at a higher capacity, um, the same problems are just now reflected at a bigger scale. So I think the question for me is, or do we need to be using AI for everything? I think it's a great question to ponder. So how are you getting to the people who, you know, are being marginalized through AI bias? How are you taking these complicated ideas and filtering it down to something that's able to be understood without a PhD? Well, I, uh, that's, that's an awesome question. I, I love the fact that I have experience in teaching and talking to students of all ages. And so from five-year-olds up through, you know, people in their late fifties, early sixties, seventies, I've worked with a, a wide, a wide, very wide range of people. Um, and what their understanding is, or their, their level of like being able to conceptualize certain things. And so, I think I'm using a lot of what I learned in entertainment and how, um, and fine arts and how you can reach people through sometimes nonverbal communication and through visual communication and through abstract, um, means of communication that, um, you know, these populations may be engaging with more than they may be learning in the classroom or going to read a book in a library or even having access to, or going to a higher level education. I am, looking at how to reach them through the things that they're already consuming. You know, it's not everyone gets a college degree, but most people have a cell phone. And on that cell phone, most people are engaging in social media or they're on TikTok or they're content creating on YouTube. And so it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty widespread, the usage of, of these things. And outside of, you know, social media and entertainment in general is, is what people use as an escape. And so, I know that people are already engaging in that type of learning and maybe even discourse that's happening around some complicated subjects. So instead of trying to do this more formally in a classroom, how do we really use those platforms to infuse these messages that typically wouldn't be taught to these groups? And as someone who like barely pays attention to what is being shown on TV or in the movies. Is there, (laughs) just being honest. That's fair. That's totally fair. Is there, um, is there some sort of representation in media outside of just social media of what is happening in AI? Um, there, there are some, some things. I mean, we we all, we all know the, the tropes in sci-fi. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest, um, areas in entertainment where people feel that they get a lot of their quote unquote knowledge about what's happening in technology from, I would not say that, uh, all of it is accurate. Um, I would, I would be very careful about believing in everything you see in a science fiction movie. And a lot of it is, you know, doomscaping and, 
making a good story, making a good plot. You know, it's uh, some of it is that bad and some of it isn't that bad. Like the whole idea that AI is going to take over the world and hold us all hostage and things like that. I don't necessarily believe in that. Um, but there are some really great resources on, you know, platforms like Netflix and Hulu and um, some of these more independent production companies that are taking it upon themselves to either uh, purchase or to purchase and promote or to produce their own types of um, documentaries or shows that are based around these topics. And so, for instance, uh, Coded Bias about facial recognition, about bias and facial recognition, released on Netflix recently, and that's a really great resource. Um, But of course, in saying that, you'd have to be a person that wants to watch a documentary, and that's not necessarily for everyone. Um, But in releasing them on these platforms and in these more accessible ways where it can suggest something to you or you can scroll through and find it and you're already paying for the subscription so you don't have to go outside of yourself and go seek out this information it's just there you know it's it's becoming more readily available to anyone who may have curiosity about it and so um, I've seen a lot of uptick in documentaries and uh, short series about these topics but um, it's definitely starting to like proliferate down into what is the topics that are being talked about in TV shows and um, movies that are coming out nowadays too. So it's out there, it's happening slowly. And I'm hoping to be one of the people that can, you know, speed up that change and get that information out there. Yeah. Now, have you experienced any situations where AI bias has worked against you? I'm, (laughs) it's all speculation, you know, I'll put, let me put it that way. Uh, there are definitely times in life that myself as a black as a black woman, I feel that perhaps my um, there are different results in doing different things for maybe my white counterparts. Um, my husband is white, and I, I do recognize that there are some differences in how we're sorted within systems or things that are suggested to us or recommendations. Um, but you know. I'll, I'll just leave it there and say that I can say that it's probably happened, but uh, there's no way to prove it. And uh, that's a lot of what the black boxing in the systems allows for is not being able to prove what my suspicions are. Right. So when you're getting like targeted ads or anything is like the back of your mind doing the, like, I know how the AI works and I know X, Y, Z. hundred percent. One hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if I'm, if I'm looking at an ad for too long, now it thinks I'm obsessed with it. Or if it's, um, you know, and it, it's across all different t- types of platforms, all different sorts of platforms. It could be from social media to just, you know, going, moving around in different websites, what uh, notifications my phone starts to tell me about, like, oh, we saw you're thinking about taking a trip here. So let's start building a, you know, a full itinerary for you. So yeah, uh, it's, uh, once you understand how it's working on the back end, it's, it's actually pretty obvious how we're all being targeted and that they have these profiles on us of who they think we are sometimes better than we know ourselves, but those profiles definitely exist and they know how to get us. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've purchased several things from, from some targeted ads. So it's effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it can definitely be effective. Now, where are you in your PhD program? Are you at the beginning, the end, in the middle? 
I am right in the middle. I'm entering my third year of hopefully, fingers crossed, only five. Um, but I will uh, finish up my coursework this fall, and then I'll be moving into uh, solely working on my research. And do you know, like, your specific research, the main topic that you will be trying to solve? Um. I think in, you know, just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I think focusing on um, how we can use or partner with fine arts organizations and arts collectives and media and entertainment as informal educational tools. So I, I have a lot of things going on in, in the hopper, but... um I'm sure that at the end of all of this, I'm, I'm going to want to have some sort of bridge building that happens between academia and the entertainment industry. And when you get your PhD, do you think you'll end up more back in the entertainment side of things? Yeah, um, having worked in industry for so long, I mean, I, have, I had oof, 14, 15 years in industry before I even decided to go back and get a master's. I started working very young. Um, I, I really do like being in industry. I like the speed and the pace of things. And I, and that's where I'm focused at heading back. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love being an educator. Um, I love being in academia. I've taught for a long time. Like I said, various age groups and even at the college level, but um you know, I don't, I don't know if staying in an academic space is for me. I want to see where the work that I'm doing can be um, put into action in the companies on the other side of my brain. I have that academic side and then I have that like technical entertainment side. And so I want to go back and see how that works, but I, I would never say no to, you know, down the road somewhere, going back into academia, teaching, advising something. But right now, my sites are definitely focused on going back into industry once I graduate. Yeah, that's understandable. So you mentioned that you started working really young. Mm -hmm. What was what was that like? And what was your experience growing up? So I started working at around 16, 15, 16. And um, there was a combination of like working at summer camps with kids and things like that. But then I, you know, started working as a technician at this theme park and I was one of the youngest technicians that they had ever hired. And it was very much like a trust game that they had to, you know, really believe that I was not going to a hurt myself and that there, you know, weren't going to be some liability issues. But, um, I, I had really worked very hard in high school in my high school theater department to prove myself and to, uh, take over like the lighting section of the theater department and and learn as much as I could building sets and things like that. And so my supervisor at the time at the theme park, he really put a lot of trust in me. And I thank him to this day for giving me the opportunity to be so young working with these much older people, um, you know, taking care of a bunch of theaters in a theme park. And I And I learned so much from that because I was, you know, there were at least five different venues in the theme park and I was driving parade floats and operating, you know, CO2 machines under the stage. And I learned a lot about lighting and sound and what it takes to completely switch a theme park over in between seasons or holidays and, you know, what it's like to drive vehicles through a park when the park is closed. And um, it was an interesting experience. And I, I definitely, as much as I learned and I was given a lot of opportunity, there were a lot of um, 
walls and barriers that I faced, um, not only for being as young as I was, um, but also for being a black female in a very white male dominated field. Um, so I've definitely received my fair share of uh, being told uh, what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do due to my race or my gender. Um, who am I allowed to speak to and who I'm not allowed to speak to based on my race and gender. And this, you know, outside of, this is even outside of working in the theme park. This is all across the entertainment industry. I've, I've definitely experienced what it's like when people just don't believe in you, when people don't believe that you're capable of, of completing a task or, um, you know, cause I was a, a shop for woman and a technician, a technical director. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of silencing that happens. There's a lot of minimalization that happens. There's a lot of, um, just questioning of your capabilities. And so throughout my time, it definitely helps you to build a thick skin, which has helped me to moving into academia as well. And, you know, so you developed a thick skin, but how, how were you able to deal with people saying or or just like not having the confidence in you to be able to do something or saying you couldn't do something how did you then succeed I mean as as unfortunate as it is and you should never have to prove yourself to someone I mean I, I everyone has you know has to go through their chops and and show that they know what they're doing and that they're qualified and competent but there was a lot of um going above and beyond in ways that maybe my peers weren't, um, to prove that I could stay later hours. I could lift heavier things. I could learn more than they could and be more knowledgeable about various parts of the job. And instead of just being focused on one and, you know, that comes with consequences. I don't think anyone should have to go through that much just to be a player in the game as, as other people from different races or demographics just are allowed a ticket for entry, you know, there, there was definitely many, many hurdles and hoops and barriers that I came up across that have, you know, left me with, you know, psychological hurt around it. Um, it makes you question your worth and your value as a person, but it's something that if you really want and you push for, um, and you, and you work with other people around you. I mean, I worked with a lot of women, a lot of wonderful, wonderful women in, in this industry. And, um, we all experience the same thing. And so there's, there's also this culture of commiseration that happens, but there's also a culture of strength really of, of building each other up. And, um, you know, my, my, what I consider my home theater in Texas in Austin, Texas, um, it's, it's primarily run by women and very strong women that, that for, I had a couple of jobs that did this, but that was a place where I felt like the respect was just so automatic that the women were in charge and the women were um, the leaders. And, and you went to the women to ask your questions. You went to, you know, those were your, your seniors in that field. And that's, it's rare. I've had a couple of opportunities like that, but it really comes from um, just having people to commiserate with as well. But yeah, there's definitely emotional and physical scars that have come from, um, not being believed in to be able to even do your job. And are you experiencing any of that now? In academia, um, also a predominantly white male field, there are not a lot of people that look like me 
and there are not a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, there are not a lot of black women. We're out there, we're growing. Um, but you know, the space that we do occupy, there's a lot of still silencing. There's a lot of, um, and, you know, trying to make us feel small, trying to discount the work that we're doing. And so I think it's just as important, like I was saying in the entertainment industry for us to all have support systems and to be together on this and to be able to talk about the different techniques and, you know, tactics, not only for how to represent yourself and go about handling the world, but also how to do self-care. Um, but I have to say, yeah, the same things unfortunately happen. And I just think that that happens to be the plight of the black woman in the world. Um, no matter what industry that she's in. That's like horribly unfortunate. And as you said, you know, you're growing, there's more of you. So hopefully, you know, as, as life goes on, it, it gets better. Um, I think that everyone should want that. Absolutely. Have you been the token black woman in a lot of places you've been? Oh yeah. Um, so, um, I grew up, um, so, okay, I have a, I have a bit of a, like, a, a weird history. So I was born in Germany. Both of my parents were in the military. And uh, both of my parents were in the army. And because of that, I was born in Germany uh, in the late 80s, like a lot of U.S. kids who had parents in the military at the time. And um, we moved around a lot. I mean, there's a lot of diversity in military life. But, you know, once um, my my parents had split and my mom and I had settled in like the Texas area, you know, depending on where you are in schools that may be like more predominantly white in town, certain cities, um, you're definitely the token. And then no matter where you go, unfortunately, as you move into like, maybe like taking AP classes in high school or, you know, like advanced placement or, um, you start moving further along in academia or, you know, you're working with certain subjects and certain topics, there are less and less people that look like you. And I've definitely been called the Oreo. I'm black on the outside, white on the inside. I've been, I've received this type of treatment from um, white counterparts. And I've also received just my fair share of discrimination from black people, unfortunately, because I didn't fit the bill of, you know, I, I was, not trusted, I guess, to fit into either bucket. And so that was definitely difficult to be the token for one side. And then you're like, I'm not the token because this side doesn't accept me either. So I don't really belong anywhere. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always been kind of like, I stuck out like a sore thumb throughout all of my childhood. And, you know, it's, it's happening again now. There was a period in there in like high school and <laughs> college where I could blend in with the crowd, but it's, it's, it comes and goes in waves. Mm-hmm. And what has it been like being with your husband since he's white? Um, he is thankfully um, an, an incredible person. Obviously I wouldn't have married him if, if he wasn't. Um, but that's just, it's never been something that, I mean, we've been together for 11 years and, um, 
it was never something that came up as like something that we had to talk about in the beginning or, um, you know, get over like his family is very open and accepting and my family is very open and accepting. It was never anything like that. Um, as we have lived and grown together though, I find the most of our conversations about the differences between race are just explaining to him that like we, you can't make the same assumptions about access that you have as a white male for me. And you can't make the same assumptions about, you know, how easy or hard my life has been or, or, you know, what I have the right to be upset about or not. And um, it's definitely a learning and growing process. And I can't necessarily expect him to really understand all the nuances of my lived experience. But we have really great and productive conversations when those moments come up. Um, when I'm hurt about something or frustrated about something or I'm seeing how the world is treating me differently than it's treating him. Um, it's it's nice to be able to have someone that even though we are not from a from the same background can really absorb and sit and listen which i think is the most important part i listen to him just the same as he listens to me and we both believe each other in our lived experiences and i think that's the most important part that's really great to hear that you know everything was accepting and you're still able to have learning moments and um but it's also not like the center of the conversation Right. No, no, it, it, uh, it's, it's never been like that. And I, I have actually dated people previously that, you know, that were outside of my race that, uh, there were family issues or there were, you know, things that came up down the road that were not so nice. And so it's nice to, uh, to be with a person, but that's never been a concern for him or his family. So switching topics a little bit, one of the things that we talked about before, we started recording. Um, you know, sometimes my guests offer resources, books they really like, YouTube, movies, whatever it may be. Um, and you were saying that you don't necessarily feel like you fit in any buckets. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Oddly enough, for this question, it was really hard for me to think of an answer of, you know, something that would resonate with me or my personal experiences, just one thing or a handful of resources. Uh, but then I really understood why. And I've, I guess I've always felt this way in this, going back to what I was talking about a few minutes ago, I'm kind of an anomaly or like a unicorn. You know, my, my past and my present and my future have no solid through line that anyone can follow. And um, my life based off of my race or my gender has not been typical um, or what would people would consider quote unquote typical. And that's just due to where I've lived and the choices that I've made and the careers that I've followed. And I just don't think that there's any one story or piece of writing or media that can really encompass any part of who I am. And maybe that can be said for everyone. Um, but I'm actually really proud of that. You know, when people get to know me, I always get the comment that I've lived a million different lives in one lifetime. And I pride myself in the fact that you can't really pin me down or sort me into one box. I'm very confusing. Um, and my parents, you know, my parents set the bar really high and achieved a lot and lived extremely interesting and diverse lives traveling across the world and experiencing all that life has to offer. And I watched them do this as I was growing up and they challenged me to do the same. And so I've set out to make that my goal is to, you know, live the most wild and varied and unique life that I possibly can. That's really cool. Have you gotten the tra the chance to travel all over as well? So, um, I the only places that I've been internationally since I've been an adult are um, 
Mexico and like the Caribbean places like that. Um, especially being in Texas, they're, you know, fairly easy to get to, but I've done a lot of travel across the U S I've lived in several different States here. And then, you know, the pandemic didn't help anything, but there were definitely plans to, and plans coming up here, uh, in the future to go to, I want to go back to Germany and visit where I was born. Um, I definitely have plans to go to Europe and Japan. And, um, I mean, travel everywhere. My, my parents have been to the Middle East. Um, they've been to, I mean, you name it. At least one of my parents has gone somewhere and I would love to retrace their steps. They had so many cool adventures, you know, even while my mom was pregnant with me, there are pictures of me in different countries that I've never been to physically as a person, but I was there with her. So I'd love to retrace those steps. Yeah. Now, were they traveling solely through the military? Um, no. So some of it was through the military and some of it was, um, you know, like once, once you're in Europe, it's a little bit easier to get around between countries. And so, um, some of it was where they were stationed and then they would just set off to go visit all the places or countries or, you know, areas around wherever they were stationed. And so that allowed them to see a lot of the world by happening to be placed in one area. And then they got to kind of like spread out and go adventure. Now, is there something or anything else that you would like to share that, you know, helps explain why you're an anomaly, you're a unicorn in this world? I feel like, and I, and I encourage everyone to be this way, I feel like so much of a student of life. And I'm always learning, but in order to do that, I have to leave myself open to learning. And so I try not to define myself either. I try not to settle on an identity or a definition of who I am as a person, because um, that doesn't allow for the flexibility to pick up something new or to learn something from someone else. And so I always consider myself an artist and a teacher, first and foremost. And um, in being a teacher, I am also myself a student. And I I, I just have the sense of, the sense of adventure in learning whether that be through travel or through actually sitting down and reading a book, um, that there's just more out there than I can ever consume in my lifetime, more out there than any of us can ever consume in our lifetimes. And, and there's no way that if I were to try to live one life where I just decided to do this one thing and live this one path and be this one person, I wouldn't be able to have all these varied experiences where I get to soak up all of the different flavors of the world, of the universe, you know? And so I think that that really contributes to why I live this like unicorn type of life where I'm like, okay, well, I did that. Check that box. This was a good five, 10 years in life. What's the next adventure? You know? Do you have some check boxes that you want to check off in the future? Um, for sure. Uh, travel is definitely one of them. I started off on stage and in front of the camera when I was really young. There's always something in the back of my head where I'd like to pursue a career and be famous for, you know, being a singer, an actor, you know, be on Broadway or something like that. So I don't know, maybe I'll do that in my 50s. Um, uh, being being a, a parent... Um, by whatever that means, you know, I have, I have two really lovely fur babies, my two cats. And, um, 
whether that means being a parent to my own biological children or children that I choose to, you know, have in my life, wherever they've come from, or even if that just continues to be, you know, the, the, the parent to my students, I very much like am protective over my students and consider them my kids and I care about every aspect of their lives. I love that too. So whatever being a parent means down the road, I feel like I've already served that role a couple of times, but yeah, whatever, whatever that means. So there's definitely some boxes out there to be checked. Uh, being a beach bum and, and retiring somewhere in South Florida, that's also on the list. So we'll see. There's a lot of different directions this could go. Yeah. And, and some things that, you know, can happen in a long while and don't need to happen right away. So you've talked a lot about teaching. What what sort of teaching have you been doing throughout your life? Um, so I started um, in summer camp environments um, where I was, you know, teaching classes. I would teach theater classes, dance classes, but I was just a regular day camp counselor. And then from there in my undergrad, I was a part of uh, an after-school tutoring program I became one of the site coordinators and I was actually creating the curriculum and the curricula for uh, helping students to in, in vulnerable and marginalized uh, communities to help them pass standardized tests that were in the state of Texas. And so um, I was over science and math. And so I was teaching students, you know, after school and coming up with the different activities and things they would do. And even back then I was trying to be so creative with it. You know, I wasn't, especially with science, we weren't sitting down in the classroom and I was trying to teach them concepts. Like we were outside and I was teaching them about photosynthesis or I was putting, I was heating up water and putting ice cubes in water and doing like put a spoon in the water and put a pencil in the water and teaching them about like conductivity and things like that. Um, from there, let's see, that was an undergrad. And then when I graduated with my bachelor's, um, after a couple of years of working of working as a lighting designer, I became an instructional associate and technical director at a college, at a junior college in the area where I completed my bachelor's. And I was there, uh, you know, doing theater, teaching students. I basically had the scene shop and I had lab hours. And so students would come to me and I would instruct them. We would actually, you know, build the sets for the plays and the shows that were coming up and hang the lights and do all the sound and everything. But I was also, you know, teaching them the basic concepts of scenic construction and sound design and lighting design. And then from there, I um, actually worked for a test prep company and I was a college admissions advisor and um, a senior enrollment coordinator. And so we were not only helping students to walk through the process of how to get into college, you know, picking schools, the applications for schools, uh, what your chances are and how to make your chances better to get, you know, into the school of your choice, not your choice, but, and to get into a good school and, you know, variety, you know, lots of applications to lots of places is the way to do that. Everything was, you know, very above board. And, you know, we didn't fill out applications for any of the students. We didn't do any of the work for them. We just really gave them all of the tools that, you know, a lot of students don't know what the really selective process is to, you know, for college admissions. And so we walked them through that. And then, um, you know, test prep for all of the standardized tests, SAT, ACT, even high school and elementary level tests, and then went up into grad level, MCAT, um, you know, all grad admissions tests. And, um, so that was probably the last time that I worked in education with like 
what you would traditionally consider students. Right after I got my master's from NYU, I worked in uh, media and marketing for a company in New York, and I was doing some training there for employees. Um, And then, of course, now at CU Boulder, where I'm a PhD student, um, I also teach. And so I'm a teaching assistant um, for the students, for the undergrad population at CU Boulder. And I've been doing that for the past four semesters. So I've varied in between having 30 students to having 90 students and all different types of topics. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that just all the different things, as you've said over and over, that, that you have experienced in, in just a short time. Yeah, I really, uh, I feel very, very fortunate that I've been able to do so many things over such a short amount of time. You know, not all of them were um, out of choice. Some of them were out of desperation. Like I've, I've definitely um, been a pet washer. I've definitely sold jewelry. I've uh, been the head of a furniture department at a store, just a bunch of different things. And those were, you know, more for money than for utility in my life uh, or like growth in my life. But you, you grow from every experience you have. And I've definitely taken away something from every single place that I've worked or, you know, had the opportunity to contribute something. Now, because you mentioned them, I would like to hear about your fur babies. <laughs> yes, of course. So I have two. Um, they are both gray. One's fully gray and the other one is um, gray and white. I call them my grabies because they're my gray babies. And I always name my pets after breakfast foods. And so there is Grayson Sausage Gravy. And I call him Graceface. And then there is Flap Jackson. And I call him Jax. And um, Grayson came from Texas. They're both about five. Um, Grayson came from Texas. A friend had a litter of kittens and said, oh, I know you're looking for a cat. Have the perfect cat for you. I've always had cats all my life. And um, we had an older cat at the time um, who uh, was, was getting up in years. And so I wanted to bring in a new baby into the house to try to like learn his behaviors and, you know, be prepared for that moment when he left us. And it worked out really well. So Grayson was with us. We moved to New York with Grayson. And um, then he was really lonely when his brother passed. And so we knew we had to get him a, a new friend. And so we were living in Harlem at the time and found a really great organization, uh, New York City Animal Rescue Girls. And um, I, Jackson came from the streets of Harlem and he was fostered by this organization and they took very good care of him. He got all the treatment he needed. And then uh, he was, he was brought over and I told them exactly what I was looking for. Just a good brother for Grayson about the age, you know, the demeanor, and it couldn't have been a better match. And so we lived with them in Harlem for two years. And then we've now been in Colorado with them for two years. Awesome. I, I love when I get to hear about people as pets. Is there anything else that you would like to share before I start to wrap things up? No, I guess, I guess if anything, I have really loved living my life as this unicorn. And I encourage everyone in your own beautiful and special and amazing way um, to try to live your life as a unicorn, whether that means you ever leave your hometown or not, or you travel the world or you just try a couple of different jobs and industries, or I don't know, you take your kids on vacation or something. I just, I just think there's so much out there in the world to learn. And 
there's so many people to learn from and so many cool experiences to be had. So I encourage everyone as the world starts to open back up, hopefully, and everything with the pandemic starts to calm down a little bit. Um, I just encourage everyone to be a unicorn and go out and find your, your little unique special in the world. That's some great advice. Now with all of my guests at the end, I ask a random question. (laughs) So, you know, nothing to do with what we've been talking about. Okay. Um, and right, I throw it <laughs> off the walls at the end. Um, so my qu- my question for you, um, hopefully you have an answer, okay. is what is your dream car? Oh. Ooh. Um, it probably changes, but I'll tell you what it is right now. I'm a big fan of um, like bigger, boxier cars, like SUVs. I probably drive my dream car, but my little Tommy Toaster is so old. I drive a Scion XB and I love my box car. It, I've moved an entire one bedroom apartment in that car. That's one of my dream cars. Um, but I already have it and I love it and it's paid off. It's mine. Um, the other one, if I had to get a new car, would be a Jeep Compass, actually. Um, we were able to, when we drove from New York back down to Texas and we were moving to Colorado, we made a stop in Texas and came up here. We rented a Jeep Compass and I got a lot of like really intimate time of driving that vehicle across the country. And it was nice. It was luxurious. It was, it holds a lot on the inside. The cats loved it. That's like an A plus for me. So a Jeep, if I had to get another vehicle, especially living here in the Colorado mountains, it would be a Jeep Compass. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving a lot of good things down in the description. So the Netflix documentary that Kandria mentioned, Coded Bias, along with her personal information, her Twitter, her website. She's pretty much just Kandria Wade everywhere. You can find her on the CU Boulder website and everything will then link you to if you want to contact her. She's welcome to talk to other people and learn more about things. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description and that can bring you to all of the social media. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The email is right there as well. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, we always like to have Patreon supporters. Thank you so much, Kandria, for spending time with me today. I've had a great time listening to all about you. And to my listeners, thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next week, bye. Thanks so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Everyone go find your unicorn. Bye. Bye.